We were made for so much more. You know that, don't you? The Bible begins with those, those four simple words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Okay, so the movie Prometheus isn't exactly for everyone. In fact, I'm not even sure it was for me, okay? It was uh, intense, bordering on on horrifying. This is not like a vast recommendation, okay? Uh, But I watched this movie because I was intrigued by the premise. It's about humankind's desperate search for our creator, And so the story starts off and it's, you know, humans somewhere out there in the future, right? And along the way, they've discovered all these rumors of another world, all pointing to to some sort of creator. And so desperate for answers, right? A group of these humans, they compile all these rumors, hop on a spaceship and go to the place that we all came from in search of the God, or in this case, the aliens, Right? Who made us. And yeah, I'm a little bit of a nerd, okay? But this movie isn't really about aliens. It's about what it means to be human. And what it means to have a creator. And what it looks like to be created for more or less than we had hoped for. In the world of Prometheus, it seems as if we humans were created for less. For much, much less. And there's this this scene in the middle of the movie, this conversation between one of the the humans on this quest and between this, his human looking robot, a robot that humans had created and made. So I want to watch this this conversation. Uh, The the robot is the one standing, okay? So let's let's watch this scene together. Imagine if we were created simply because some higher power could. You know, based on just the the whim of of some great deity somewhere who's just decided to do this. Or or what if if it really is all just chance, right? Billions of years and a mountain of luck. What would we do for answers? Anything and everything. Everything. Because deep down, we know we were made for so much more. We know that, don't we? You want to know one of the reasons why I believe in God? I mean, there, there are multiple reasons. And, and yes, I've got you know, some you know, well-thought-out philosophical reasons, etc., all of that. But one, one of the big reasons I believe is purely existential. Simply because I feel deep within me. I cannot shake this feeling that I was created for more. I just can't shake that that feeling deep within me that that there's got to be something more, somewhere, somehow. Philip Yancey calls these rumors of another world. 
That all around us, if we, if we look for them, we watch for them, there are these rumors, these glimmers of Eden, rumors of another world, of a place that, that, we, were, that we were created for. And rumors, they're not proof, right? Rumors are rumors. But if you compile enough rumors together, right, you begin to think, maybe, just maybe, what are some of these rumors? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can probably come up with, with quite a list yourself. I mean, for me, one of the big ones is, is beauty, right? Uh, when you experience incredible, breathtaking beauty. This past summer, as a family, we drove through the Rocky Mountains to get to the Grand Canyon. I mean, rumors of more. Or I hear these, these rumors of more sometimes in those, those deep belly laughs, right, that we, that we get as a family. Uh, they happen pretty often when we do our Miller family dance parties, which none of you are invited to. Um, but we, we do these things, right? And we all just end up silly and laughing. And there's that deep little subtle rumor of something more. Or, or the, the love and intimacy between, between Kelly and, and me. These, these rumors that we have. Or, or music, right? Can do it as well. Steve Jobs knew this. Uh, his biographer writes about how uh, in one encounter, Jobs was tearing up listening to the great cellist Yo-Yo Ma. And then Jobs said to him, you playing is the best argument I've ever heard for the existence of God because I don't really believe a human alone can do this. And for me, there's one particular Yo-Yo Ma piece. Actually, there's one measure of one song that every time I hear it, something within me says I was created for more. I can't explain it. But there's that, that rumor that I, I feel deep within a good story will do this for me as well. I mean, I felt it recently, right, as, as we watched Les Mis in the theater and sort of embracing that, that story, that powerful story of, of grace and redemption, this, this rumor, more, not proof, just a rumor. Or sometimes we feel it and the strange satisfaction we get with a job well done. Or, or we experience it in those incredible moments of when joy just sort of shows up randomly, it seems. All of these little, tiny rumors along the way. C.S. Lewis writes about this. He talks about how all creatures are, are born with desires. Uh, but it, for, for the most part, in the, in the animal world, right, when, when a, a creature is born with desires, there's something that fulfills that desire. And so, a, a, you know, a, a baby is going to be born with a desire for food. Well, such a thing as food exists. A duck is, is born with an insatiable desire to swim, and there's such a thing as water. But then he says that, that we humans, who are born with so many desires, right? So many longings deep within them, and yet so few of them find total and complete fulfillment. So often we're left longing for more even in the midst of the greatest things. And so Lewis writes, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Rumors of more. And not just good things either. We hear these, these rumors sometimes even more loudly, right? In the midst of, of tragedy or pain or sickness or death, those moments when we just can't help but cry out, surely life is more than just this. I mean, I experienced it with the, the tragedy in, in Newtown. I mean, I know many of us, as we face that and 
saw the news of all that, that horror that happened there, it caused some of us right to, to question God's goodness. I, I get that. But it didn't cause me to question his existence. In fact, if anything, it reaffirmed in my mind that God must be real because why else would I feel such rage, right? Such, such in, incredible crying out of agony that this, this shouldn't be this way. I mean, why else would I have that sense that that doesn't belong in this world if it doesn't belong? We were made for more. We hear these rumors all around us. Something within us, and good things and bad, point to something better. There's no proof. Nobody has proof. But rumor after rumor, some of them so deep within us, we can barely even stand it. And there is nothing in the world, no philosophy, no religion, no scientific discovery that helps us make sense of all of these rumors, helps us put them all together quite like those four little words. In the beginning, God. And the three chapters that follow in the story. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to to Genesis 1 through 3. Again, we're going to try to cover this entire story. Um, It's a big one. A lot happens here. Uh, But most of you have read it this week, so you're you're on top of it and and ready to go as we walk through this story together. And we'll be in Genesis for the next few weeks. Genesis simply means beginnings. For Genesis is the beginning of our world, our, our life, our faith, our failure, but also our redemption and our hope. It all begins right here. And the three chapters that we're going to look at this morning set the stage not just for the entire book, right, of all that we're reading together and studying, but even for our lives and for our world. Everything finds its root in these pages. We were created for so much more. And we see it right here. So as we look at these chapters, we're going to ask four questions of the story. What were we made for? What went wrong? What did we lose? And what's left for us? Before we can understand the rumors, or even our despair at what went wrong, we've got to answer the question, what were we made for? Why were we made in the first place? The answers leap from these pages. We were made for God, first and foremost, above, above anything else. But we're also made for for contribution in our world, for for delight in our experiences, and for each other in intimacy. We were made for God. We've got to start there. Because above all, above anything else, the reason we exist is simply for his pleasure. We were made by him, for him, to be like him. Begin reading in, in chapter 1, verse 27. So at the tail end of of what we heard read for us this morning already. It says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now God is the assumed main character of this story. And not just Genesis 1 and 2, right, of the entire Bible. As we read, okay, even if he's in the background, this book is not about us first. It's about God and and his desire to draw a people to himself for his glory. And Moses here, Moses is the writer, the author of of Genesis. He just sort of assumes that God is, doesn't he? In the beginning, God 
And he sort of assumes God didn't, didn't create us simply because he could, simply based on a whim or by the roll of a dice, but he created us out of his good pleasure. Simply out of the overflow of his love, not because he needed us or needed anything, simply out of his love. And he made us to be like him. And that's kind of the idea of, of made in his image. One children's Bible imagines it this way. It says, God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all of his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. What does it mean to be like God? There are rumors of it everywhere. We hear the the rumors in in our uh, generosity and love, right? I mean, who is more loving and generous than God? We we hear the rumors in our creativity. Who's more creative than the God who made everything? We we hear rumors in our sense of of right and wrong and our ability to to make choices and our ability to, to rule. All of these are rumors, we hear these rumors in, in those inexplicable moments of transcendence. Those moments when we feel like there must be something else. Philip Yancey writes, he says, Sophisticated moderns have not renounced transcendence, but rather replaced it with weak substitutes. We feel the longings for something more. But we, we look to, to feel those longings for transcendence with other things, sex and money and stuff and, and family and power, all, all of which can be really good things, but really weak substitutes. We feel it. We all long for more. Above all else, we were created for God. To know him, to love him, to obey him, to worship him, to be in relationship with him. The reason you exist, the reason I exist, the reason we are on planet earth above anything else is simply to know the one who made us. That's what this book teaches. But there's more that we learn in this story about our purpose there in the garden. So once we understand that that's the primary thing, we're also created for contribution. We won't spend a lot of time here, but just this idea of work that Adam and Eve were created to work this garden that God had made. We see it a little bit in in chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, let them have dominion, you know, let them rule over everything. In 2.15, it's even even more explicit. The Lord God took the man, it says, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Even before the fall, for everything fell, fell apart, even there, we were created to contribute, to be productive, to work. The world that God made matters. And the work that we do in his world matters deeply to him. In many ways, that's, that's why we often find such satisfaction, right? It's such fulfillment in the work that we do. Yes, work is frustrating. And we'll see that as we continue the story, right? Of why work gets so frustrated and we get so infuriated by it. But deep down, oftentimes, we, we feel this, this satisfaction in work. It's also why in unemployment, it often comes with, with anger, sometimes with depression, because we're, we're made to contribute. It's in our DNA to contribute, to be productive. But we're also made for delight, for contribution and for delight. 
I mean, that's kind of a, a, a way to sort of summarize all that's going on in this garden. I don't, I don't know a better word, honestly, than just calling it delight. Because it's hard to imagine a garden like Eden. A place of absolute perfection. Exquisite beauty like never seen. Total abundance of all the, the needs, everything that we could possibly long for and desire. I mean, it's, this is why we named our daughter Eden Joy. Simply to remind us that, that we were made for such incredible delight. Think about what that, that world must have been, been like. Of, of course we long for these things. Of course we long for, for beauty and intimacy and, and joy and, and work and all of these things. It's, it's because that's the home that we were made for. We were created for this garden, for this, this place. It's everything about it is in our DNA. It still runs within us even after the fall. And we long to go back. We long to go home. And we'll get to the reason why we can't. But we were made for these things. Verse 8, a little bit of a, a description of the garden there. It's one of, my, one of my favorites. Chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I mean, it's a subtle thing there, but I, I love that it mentions both. That our God didn't just create a utilitarian world. It's not just good for food. He didn't just make fuel for us humans. It was pleasant to look at. It was beautiful. That God is is not just a God of utility. He is one who made creativity and beauty and, and pleasure and all this exquisite delight that we could enjoy to point us to the one who is most beautiful. You don't have to try very hard to find rumors of delight. This is why goodness and pleasure touch us so deeply. Why there's little more worshipful than an experience of of tremendous beauty. It reminds us of home. That we were made for more. One more thing here that we see so clearly in the garden that we're created for. Is that we're made for one, one another. For each other. At the end of every creation day, God says this is good. So this is good, and that is good, and this is good. I mean, he's, he's proud of his work. And at the end of, of day six, after he's made man, he steps back and he says, this is very good, right? The, the pinnacle of his creation, the high point of all that he made. But there's one thing that he says is not good in the garden. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So he made Eve... And it says that they were naked and unashamed. And, and while I, I think that description is, is, is literal in that place, it's so much more than literal, okay? It, it implies that there was nothing to hide. There, there's nothing to be afraid of. No shame, no fear to be absolute, as, as a human individual, to be absolutely known and loved and accepted by another human. It's a, a picture of being naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide. And we have been searching for that kind of intimacy ever since. We find rumors of it. We, we hear rumors in passion and sex and family and, and friendship and laughter. All these, all these pointing to the, this desperate longing we have for this kind of intimacy. We, we hear the negative kinds of rumors as well, right? And, and divorce and separation and ultimately in, in death or broken relationships. 
We know it deep within that we're created for one another. And we will search desperately for one another. A couple weeks ago, watched a little uh, indie film, um, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Most of you probably haven't heard of it. It's kind of, a, kind of an obscure one. Um, uh, but I, I, like, I like weird movies. And, and this one, it was mostly depressing with a little bit of humor thrown in. Because uh, it's about us as people just sort of waiting for the end of the world. Um, there's a meteor coming. We have three weeks to live. And everybody knows it. And so it's just sort of that looming thing. Everybody knows when it's going to happen. There's nothing that can be done. And so it's, it is depressing, but even more depressing because it, you see this sort of desperate sort of last ditch effort to get all the satisfaction and joy, to suck all the goodness that you possibly can out of life, uh, to, to, you know, receive that, that joy and know that life was somehow worth living. But the thing that, that grabbed me the most throughout, the, really the running theme, is that when it comes to the end of the world, the thing that we want most is a friend. Someone so that we don't have to face it by ourselves. These are rumors of more. Rumors of what we were created for. We were made for more. Nothing, nothing explains these longings quite like this story. Before we move to what went wrong, sort of glaring, right, as we think about this incredible world, we know something had to happen. But before we get there, we've got to respond to these rumors. How should we live in light of Genesis 1 and 2? We need to live as we were made. Live as you were made. And think about all that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. That is our design. That's how we were created. That that is our our DNA. Those are the things that are within us. We were made to, to be creative like God, to be generous and loving and good like God, to be in relationship with God, to know him and love him and obey him. It, it's in our DNA, DNA to do that, to, to contribute and to enjoy beauty and delight, to, to care for our world. It's the, one of the first commands is that we care for our world, to have meaningful relationships with one another. Any refusal to live as we were made is fundamentally a refusal to be human. If we ignore our design, our lives become less. We become complacent in the broken way things now are. Because even though we were created for so much more, and we know that, something went horribly wrong. We know that too, don't we? Brokenness is obvious. In fact, it's got to be one of the the easiest theological beliefs to, to even grab onto because we have thousands of years of human history to know that something is wrong in our world and wrong in our lives and the way that we treat one another. It's obvious, the brokenness. And so all the delight and beauty and perfection in the garden, all that before Adam and Eve... And they sort of end up like that spoiled child who after the exploits of Christmas Day simply say, that's it? That's all? Isn't there more? Everything we could possibly want and need and desire there in that place offered to us, but we we didn't want just that. We didn't want to be merely human. We didn't want to be the created. We wanted to be the creator to be our own master, to be our own God. And so we rebelled. We declared war against him. We staged a coup on the one who made us. And now here we are. God gave us everything. But he told us not to eat from one tree. 
Everything else in all of creation was ours. Don't eat this one tree. Because God knew that if we ate of that one tree, we would think we wouldn't need him anymore. We think that we could do it on our own, that we could find our own way, that we could earn our own satisfaction and our own significance and find our own security. That if we just took, he knew that that would happen. But you see, God gave us a choice, even right there in the garden, a choice of who to love, who to obey, who to trust. If only we had chosen him. You see, God had an enemy. A terrible enemy who wanted to destroy God's plan and destroy God and God's people and God's world. And so taking the form of a snake, he spoke to Adam and Eve. See that at the beginning of of chapter 3. This this snake, it's so mysterious, isn't it? The snake begins to to cast doubt on on God's goodness there in that place. Now, I mean, this is so mysterious. Why? Why this snake is there, how it got there, why Adam and Eve thought a conversation with a snake was a good idea in the first place. We don't know. We don't, we don't have those answers. But we do know this. Sin always begins by doubting God's goodness. Even the very first sin. And every sin after. Because in chapter 3, right in verse 1, The serpent says to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, God is so stingy. What's what's his problem, right? He made all these trees and you, you just have to suffer. You can't eat any of them. Surely God is not good. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He doesn't love you, does he, Eve? And Eve, she knows better. I mean, that's not what God said, okay? So A for effort, right? Uh, But she doesn't quite get the story right either. And when she responds, she says to him, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Okay, so we can eat all the other ones. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, which is her own addition. God didn't say that. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Again, A A for effort, Eve, but that's that's not what God said. He didn't say anything about not touching the tree. What's happening here in this this strange conversation between woman and snake is this beginning to doubt God's goodness. That they're making God a little bit less gracious, a little bit less loving, a little bit more restrictive, a little bit more unkind. They begin to doubt, "Is, is he really good? I mean, thought he had my best interest at heart, but may, maybe he doesn't. Does, does he really love me? And then the snake takes it to a whole new level. Instead of just twisting God's word, he outright lies. Temptation moves from doubting God's goodness to believing that we know better. Verse 4, he won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's just selfish. He's power hungry. He wants to keep you in your place. He knows that if you eat it, you're going to become like him. He doesn't want that. And so that's what's going on here. And Eve, doubting God's goodness, and now in this moment, actually believing that she and the serpent know better 
She takes the fruit and she eats. And her husband, who's standing there with her like an idiot, grabs the fruit and eats it as well. And ultimately, they're refusing to be human in that moment. They're refusing to be human. Believing they know better than the God. They refuse to be human. Have you ever thought of sin in that way? I mean, sin is a refusal to be human because, because sin is a, it's a, it's a refusal of who we are. It's a, it's a denial of our creator. To be human is to be created. To be created is to have a creator and to owe allegiance to that creator. And so when we sin, we deny all of that. And in our attempts to be more than human, our own master, we become less. To err is human, we say. Or maybe you've you know, had a situation where somebody has sinned and you, or done something wrong and you, you've thought, well, you know, they're only human. But deep down, sin is the least human thing you and I can ever do. Because it's a denial of our maker. It's a denial of who we are at our very core. It's a denial of everything that we were made for. Even though we think sin is going to make us more, it's going to give us more, it's going to give us what we really want, it always ends up making us less. And we end up with less. Which leads to scrambling in our shame. I still remember the first time that I felt shame. You know that feeling? got to be about just the worst. I have no idea how old I was. Little. Um, But I was supposed to eat all of my grapes at lunchtime. And I didn't want to eat all my grapes. I mean, this is one of my first memories, like, in my entire life, okay? And so I took the grapes and I shoved them all back into the recesses of my mouth. And I said to my dad, I ate all my grapes! You know, mouth all full, right? Of course, he knew that I was lying. I don't know how he figured that one out. And, and I remember that feeling there, being caught in a lie with my dad. Just that incredible sense of being found out. Of being seen for who I really am and for who I really am to be kind of naughty sometimes. Downright sinful. Imagine what it must have felt like There for Adam and Eve, having experienced nothing but exquisite delight for their entire existence. Absolute harmony and joy, no fear, no hiding, no nothing. And then all of a sudden, they're like the most unwelcome intruder. Shame. The entire world shuddered in response. As that, that icy chill crept throughout the entire universe. And we have been scrambling in our shame ever since. I mean, this whole story, it's got to be one of, the, one of the saddest stories that we could even imagine, right? All that was had and, and all, all they, that they possessed there in the garden and all that was lost. I can't think of anything more heartbreaking than this. And yet at the same time, I mean, when you read it, it's, it'd almost be comical if we didn't realize how tragic it was, right? 
Because all of a sudden, right, they take the fruit and then it's like, hey, we're naked. I mean, just completely out of the blue, they, they realize that they, they're exposed now. And not just physically, that, that everything, that they feel it. They feel like they now have something to hide. It's rumors of more. And so they hide really from each other. They hide from, from God himself. Rumors of more. They, they, they try to make clothes by sewing together leaves. I mean, I've never tried that, but it can't be that effective, right? But they're, they're so desperate, they're doing anything. And then God comes into the garden. One of the most beautiful and mysterious things in the entire Bible is where it says there in chapter 3 that God used to walk in the cool of the day in the garden with them. I just can't even imagine what that must have been like. And so God comes and he does that there in their presence, but they're hiding from him. And God knows, right? He's God. So he begins to call out to them. Yoo-hoo, where are you? And Adam, he, he responds back, God, we're, uh, we're, we're hiding because we're naked, he says. God's like, well, how, how do you know you're naked? What changed? What, what changed where all of a sudden you feel this sense of shame? Did you eat of that fruit that I told you not to? And then begins the blaming. Right in verse 12. So God, he begins to question Adam and And Adam responds back in verse 12. The man said to God, right? He's talking to God, no less. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Her, okay? Uh, You gave her to me, right? God, thanks a lot, okay? Bad choice on your part. You gave me this woman. No offense, ladies. That's what Adam's saying. And that's, that's why we're in this mess. This woman that you gave to me. She gave me the fruit and then I ate. I'm like, you know, innocent bystander here. And then turning to Eve, God asks, what is, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. I didn't know any better. I'm sorry. And so I ate. Excuses, blame, and we, we've, we've been scrambling in our sin, in our shame ever since. Dr. Averbeck, my old Hebrew professor, he writes these words. He says, deception led to doubt which led to illegitimate desire, which led to disobedience, which led to fear, all of which drove them to scrambling. That is, scurrying about, trying desperately to handle themselves, each other, God, and the world. There is absolutely no rest here. They are in panic. Since that day, he says, scrambling has been a most natural disposition for all of us, and it affects every part of our life, right down to the very core of who we are, and out into all of our relationships with God and with people. We are expert scramblers. I mean, honestly, is there anything that we are better at? Managing our sin, putting on that face, hiding from others, saying the right things. I mean, I'm a pro at this. I I, I know how to hide behind that that fake facade to cast off the right image, to, to blame others, to justify myself, to somehow make myself feel better about myself or to make myself look better in front of others. And we see it as we read, we see it on every page of this book. We humans... We're professional scramblers. But we don't even have to look here. Just look at your heart, right? We know this pattern in our lives better than we know the back of our own hands. Before we move on to the next question then, I mean, if this, this is true, right? 
then we need, to, we need to respond right here. If this is the serious nature of what we've sort of entered into because of sin and brokenness in our world, we need to watch our hearts. I need to watch my heart. Adam and Eve started this mess, and we tend to sort of give them sort of this bad rap, right? That they're the, the horrible first sinners, and they've done all this, and, and look, we're just in this terrible mess because of them. We love to sort of shift blame, right? Just like they did. Um, but think about it, right? They just took a piece of fruit, it's a sin, yes, but come on. It's a fairly mild infraction at first glance, isn't it? You and I, we're liars, greedy, selfish. We manipulate people. We lust and we steal and we hate. And all our temptation, our sin, in so many ways is no different than theirs. And I'm pretty convinced not one of us would have done any better. Because we do the same things. We doubt God's goodness. We look at his commands and we think, God, you're just, his commands on, on sex or money or ego. And we think, God, what do you know? I mean, you're just, you're just trying to, to push me down. To... We think we know better, right? If I live this way, then I'll be happy. What do you know, God? Every time we sin, it's because we doubt his goodness and we believe that we know better than he does what's best for us. And it leads us to refusing to be human by sinning and scrambling in our shame. We know this pattern so deeply. And all of these things, both the good and the bad, all of them are rumors of this other world. This thing within us, deep within us, says, surely there's got to be more. Well, there was more. But we lost it. What did we lose? I mean, that's the easy part. Everything. Everything. It's all broken, all corrupted. Everything has been marred by sin. I mean, sure, there's still beauty and joy and pleasure to be had. We, we certainly experience that. Those are those, those rumors. And yet everything has been marred by this terrible thing called sin. And all those things that we were made for, the things we talked about at the beginning, they've all been fractured. I mean, the very purpose we're created, right? The, to know and love God. We have now made God our enemy, our very purpose for existing. And we have rebelled against him. And fight against him. Our ability to contribute and work, it's, it's been cursed. It's hard. It's frustrating. We struggle. Delight. There's no rest for us. There's no peace in the world around us. And each other, we fight and oppress and demean. And the icing on the cake, now there's Death. You will not surely die, he said. Is there anything in the world that we are more certain of than we, that we will surely die? Every one of us. It's the faith that waits each one of Adam and Eve's children. Death. We declared war on our creator and we lost. We wouldn't be talking about rumors of another world. We'd live in another world. We wouldn't talk about our longings for all these things. All we would know is the fulfillment of these deep longings within us. And so we are allowed to feel the brokenness, feel the pain around us and within us. Only this story explains why death is so tragic, why divorce is is so painful, why broken relationships and, and friendships, why they, they hurt us so deeply, why murder is so abhorrent. Only this story explains our shame and our regret. Feel the brokenness. We would have made the same bad choice as they did. 
We are made for so much more. And if you feel it, if you feel it deep within, that we've got to ask, what, what's left for us now? Is there anything left for us? Why didn't the story just end there? Why didn't he execute the rebels and just move on? Well, it's because God had a plan. God would love his people. Nothing, not even this, not even something as tragic and as abhorrent as this, nothing could ever stop him. And we will see it on every page of the story, every, every situation, every passage that we, we see, we will see a God who longs to rescue us, to rescue the children that he's lost. So what's left for us? Everything. And we see it particularly, even in this passage, right? Genesis 3, the ugliest chapter of all of Scripture, we see two little rumors, glimmers of hope, of a promise of one who will come. One of them is in Genesis 3.15. This comes out while God is cursing the serpent. And everything is falling apart around us. Here's what God says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity or, or anger, hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's a fairly, you know, it's sort of, you read that like, what, on, what's, what is that all about? And it's a hard one to figure out. And, and at best, it is, it is a rumor of hope. And yet most people who have studied this text would say that that is a promise that someone, somewhere, somehow, down the road, some offspring of Eve's, one of her great, 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 great grandchildren, is going to do war with the serpent. And the one who does war against the serpent, he's going to be bruised. It's going to happen on his heel. It's going to be painful, and there's going to be agony involved with it. But the fatal blow will fall upon the serpent's head, that he will be destroyed. In Romans, um, Paul picks up on this same theme at the end of Romans chapter 16. So way through all these other pages, a long ways we have to go. Uh, Romans says that God is in the process of crushing Satan under our feet through Jesus. That this is what Jesus has come to do to destroy all that is evil and broken in our world and to bring us back to rights. That one of Eve's offspring... The man, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, bruised and battered as he was on the cross, that he has crushed this serpent's head. And one more rumor. Genesis 3.21. Such a beautiful picture as Adam and Eve are sort of escorted out of the garden. They can't stay there, not after rebelling like that. But it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. That which had, had caused their shame, right? Their nakedness. And even this, this metaphor for all that they were hiding now in their guilt and in their sin, God himself covers. And he would keep covering the sins of his people. And we'll see it as we read with Noah and Abraham and Moses with all the sacrifices and, and David and Isaiah and Mary and Peter and John and me, us that God would keep covering the shame of his people. Rumors of hope. Rumors of more. God would rescue. And he, he did and he will. For he has plans to give us one day a new kind of garden. The Bible begins and ends really pretty much kind of in the same sort of place. A new creation that is in store for us where there's another tree of life waiting for us, but one in which there is no 
brokenness, no, no shame or sin, where, where we will we'll end up. I mean, the, the first two chapters of, of the Bible and the last two chapters are remarkably similar. And the first Sunday in, in this year and the last Sunday of this year, we'll look at both of those, that God has this, this plan to bring his redemption. It's what we were made for. And if this is true, then cultivate your longing. It's the last thing. Listen, listen to these rumors. Stir up your desires for more. We were made for so much more. Cultivate the, your longing by enjoying the gifts of creation, by, by resisting temptation, by weeping over our broken world, by waiting, watching, longing for the rescuer who would come. For Adam and Eve, as they were escorted out of the garden, God specifically says, you can't stay here because if you do, you'll eat of the tree of life. You'll live forever in your desperate shame. And so he kicks them out. But in the gospel, there is a new tree of life. A cross. One whose fruit we would eat of and find forgiveness and life and joy. That these rumors would begin to become a reality in us. And that we would anticipate that they would become a reality for us. And let's be honest. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were failures. I don't think I would have done any better, but they, they blew it. But Jesus is called the second Adam. Paul refers to him that way in, in the New Testament. That he is the one to restart humanity. He is our, our new parent, our new founder of a new sort of human race, that we ourselves are new creation that he has done for us. And he is so much better than the old Adam. Because that Adam caved right under, under temptation to the serpent. But, but Jesus there in the wilderness, he also faced temptation. But he came and he stood firm and he, he came to do what, his, what he was called to do, what his mission was. And the first Adam brought death, but Jesus himself, the second Adam, he stared death right in the face and he entered death, but he overcame it. He rose again so that we could have life, so that that ultimate curse, the final curse of death would no longer have power over us. Jesus rose from the dead so that we could have that hope. And he is the one who crushes all that is evil under his feet. And that process has begun now. And that process will be fulfilled finally and completely in the new creation. All that we long for when these rumors that we're so desperate for, the longings that we have so deep within us, in him, all of them will be fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we rejoice that you have made a way for us. God, we're amazed that you created us in the first place. And we're even more amazed that after our total rejection of you, that you continue to love us and pursue us. And that in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our new Adam, the one who starts a new humanity, new creations, us, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for our sins, for covering our shame with your own blood, for giving us this new sort of tree to look to to find life. God, I pray that we would worship you, that we would love you, that we would take our sins seriously, but at the same time rejoice in your incredible forgiveness. For you are the God who rescues. Amen.